some of you may recall a few years ago, Tom Cruise starred in a, um, a movie that uh, focused on a group of fighter pilots, and they were the cream of the crop, and uh, they were called upon to engage in only the most difficult of missions. Their unit was called Top Gun, and uh, throughout the film, the audience is taken on an uh, inside, kind of behind-the-scenes look into uh, what this unit was all about, and basically the, the dangerous world that they lived in. And if you recall, during uh, the movie, there was a, a particular song that was usually played uh, at the appropriate moments, and it had to do with being in a danger zone. And as you get into the danger zone, what would happen is that these fighter pilots would begin to engage in some sort, sort of uh, operation uh, with the enemy. And if they were locked onto a missile or a missile target and they were locked on, you'd, you'd hear a warning or a buzzer go off. And it was like, now you've flown into the danger zone. And you'd hear the buzzer, you'd hear the warning, there'd be an alarm. And if you didn't respond and if there wasn't appropriate action that was taken, you know, there was disaster that was impending. You know, and a lot of us, we live in a, in a world that's like that. Many of us enter into a danger zone, and for the most part, we do it on our own. You know, we enter the danger zone, and, and the next thing you know, there's impending doom that's coming our way. The warning signals go off, the buzzers begin to sound, and if we don't do something about it and take appropriate action, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. And uh, we need to recognize that there's, a, there's a, a truth to that that goes beyond just what we saw in a movie, but in reality, there's certainly truth to it. And uh, the last time we were together, we started to examine, pro without question, the single most important truth that was ta that's taught in the Bible, and that is the amazing grace of God. And many of us enter into a, d a danger zone, and it's probably the most misunderstood and misapplied truth that you'll read in the Bible as far as what God's grace is all about. And the reason for that is that many of us is, have entered into a danger zone and the alarms are going off, the buzzers are, are whirling and flashing the lights and all the rest of it, but we're not doing much to get out of it. And the danger zone is a philosophy that's in direct opposition to what God tells us about grace. And, uh, you know, at first glance it doesn't even seem to be that big a deal. But as we examine it and begin to look further into it, we realize how dangerous it really is. I like the story that I heard not too long ago about... Um, some, gal some, some, well, some, some more mature women who were living at Leisure World and they were getting rather bored with what was going on there. And, uh, you know, the guys seemed to be ignoring them. They just went golfing, you know. They went out in the day and at night they were playing chess or checkers and there wasn't a whole bunch of action going on and these gals were getting a little bored. And the one gal looked at the other and said, you know what, we need to do something to shake these guys up. I'm sick of this, the same old stuff every night sitting here watching these guys in this community center playing you know, chess or whatever, we got to shake them up. And she said, well, what do you think we should do? Because I got an idea. I don't know if you'll be for it, but I think what we need to do is just take off all our clothes and just streak right down the middle of them. She said, what? I said, yeah, you know, streak. You know, like they used to do when they just take your clothes off and just run right down the middle of them to see if we can get their attention. She goes, well, I don't know if we should do that. Goes, well, you know what, though? What do we have to lose? So the next thing you know, these two ladies, they take off all their clothes and they go running down the hallway. They go running flat past these two old guys that are sitting there playing checkers and the one guy kind of looked up he was startled and he said did you see that the guy goes yeah I saw that he goes what was that he goes I don't know but whatever it was sure needed some ironing <laughs> you know and a lot of things in life are like that you know at first glance you just can't quite fit You know, how they turn so quickly, you know? It's like, gee, I'm telling you what. 
Is it the ironing thing you don't like? You don't like anything to do with ironing. That's what it is. Okay, I got it. Permanent press, that's what I say, permanent press. Anyway, but there's a whole bunch of stuff in like, that's like that. You look at it at first glance, you just can't figure it out. And then you begin to investigate, and things change somewhat. And uh, let me see if you can guess this philosophy, because it is in, it's in direct opposition to everything that God tells us about grace. It's a philosophy that is found in numerous self-help books. If you go into any bookstore and there's a book about how to improve yourself, it's a philosophy that underlines every self-help book that you'll ever find. It's in many poems. It's in almost every, without, almost single-handedly, every rags-to-riches biography that you'll ever read of any individual, it is underlying in their biography. It's a recurring theme in most political speeches. It's a recurring theme in most commencement exercises and addresses. And it certainly is prevalent in academia. It's a philosophy that kind of feeds our pride. And it's a philosophy that, you know, basically it's self-centered and it pleases ourself. And it is the most dangerous philosophy that's out there today. And it's a danger zone philosophy because it's in direct opposition to what grace is all about. And you know what that is? That's humanism. Humanism. And in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But let me, give, let me read you a poem that was written by one of the early humanists. His name is William Ernest Henley. And he was born in Gloucester, England in 1849. And he was crippled since childhood. And he was probably among the early, the, the first and the earliest humanists that were out there. And he wrote this poem. And this poem is recited in almost every valedictorian address and commencement exercise across the country, whether it's high school or college. And it, and, and it is called Invictus. And here's what is read. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but it is yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. It's pretty heady stuff. You know, if you stop and think about it and you dig right into it, you know what it's saying is, you know what, hey, if you try harder and you dig deeper, then you can accomplish anything because your soul is unconquerable. And as I go through it and I begin to read in, in, and begin to investigate further and you underline certain things, I think whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul, you know, I go through difficult times in life, but you know what? I'm bloody, but I'm not going to bow my head to anybody or any, anything else. I don't know if there is a God, and if there is a God, I'm not bowing my head. No matter what circumstances go into my life, you know what? You're not going to find me shedding a tear over it. Because I can do anything in myself. I can conquer any obstacle if I put my mind to it. If I buy the right self-help book, then I'll be a better person. I'll overcome whatever it is that I'm struggling with. And he goes through it and he's saying, you know, I am the master of my fate. I'm the, 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 the captain of my soul. I'm in control. 
And you know, it sounds so good, and in many ways, I've heard it all my life, and probably you have as well. If you've ever been around athletics, and I have, either participating personally or been coaching or been around athletes all my life, it's one of the underlying themes and philosophies that we use over and over again to try to gain a, a greater appreciation for someone's talent or abilities to develop them beyond what, where they are at that particular point in time. And that's you've got to try harder. You've got to dig deeper. You're in a batting slump, go to the cage. You know, hit another 30 minutes every day, five days, six days a week. If your fielding is, is off, then go shag 100 balls at a time. You have got to improve yourself. And in a lot of areas of life, that is so true. And we need to recognize that. But it is also dangerous as well. You're having problems in your life? Don't turn to God because He's not there for you. He can't do anything for you. And they'll quote things like, God only helps those who help themselves. And they'll argue with you toe-to-toe -to -toe and nose-to-nose, -nose, and they'll argue with you about God's grace, that God really wants to help you. God only helps those who help themselves. And they'll quote it as if it's a passage in the Bible. You say, well, where do you get that? Second Opinions, chapter 2. <laughs> you know, where, where, where do you come up with this stuff? It's in the, you know, it's, and, and they quote it as if that's the truth. God only helps those who help themselves. I have a good friend of mine whose favorite poem was the one that I just read. And he went through some difficult circumstances in life, and God was trying in every way to gain his attention. He was bloody, but he was unbowed. He was going through circumstances in life, but he would yet shed a tear over any of it. And God was trying to break through that pride of man. And we talked about this over and over again, about how God is trying to get his attention. And this guy, this man told me, he said, listen, my dad has been praying for me since I was an All-American all in college. That somehow God would do whatever he had to do to break that pride, that prideful, rebellious spirit of mine. And help me to see that really God exists and he had a plan and a purpose for my life. But I can't see it and I'll never bow to anyone. He's sitting in a federal prison today in Long Beach waiting to be sentenced. The saddest thing that, that I can think of is the rebellious spirit of man. Humanism, that we can do anything that we set our minds to do aside from the purpose and the plan of God. Man, and you know, and it's sad to see that. Because when we talk about God's grace, God's grace is just the opposite. Because if you really ask yourself, what is humanism? It really centers on this. It's the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. Somehow we've been led to believe that we have to do something for God for God to be pleased with us. And we come up with a whole bunch of lists. And we, and we try in every way to come up with a way, how, was, how will God be pleased with me? I know what it is. You know, I'll start going to church. Or, you know, I'll, I'll start, you know, giving to charities or giving my time or maybe my money. Or, you know, okay, maybe I'm drinking a little more than I should and I'll cut back, you know, 50%. Or, or you know, I shouldn't be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that and I should be more responsible with my finances. And we come up with this long list of things. And God, if I do that for you then you will do for me. we got a, like a partnership. God needs us to do something for him. 
You know, we all cut deals with God. We've all been there. You've gone through a tough time, and it's like, all right, well, I'm bloody, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not really going to bow, but I'll compromise and I'll negotiate. And see, what humanism is, is that, you know what, we emphasize what we do for God, and grace is just the opposite of what God does for us. And we don't really understand that. And, and so I'm hoping that today, as we look at this, we'll begin to understand what the opposite of grace is so that we have a better understanding for the foundation of what grace truly is. Because you can only gain an appreciation for something when you, a lot of times when you discover what it is not. If you've got your Bibles, let me show you the first example of where this humanism or this emphasis on the rebellious heart of man begins to take place. And it's in Genesis chapter 11. And it's a fascinating journey, as we'll see, into the whole concept of mankind deciding that we will do things the way we want to do things, and God, you know what, you're just going to have to stamp, you know, give us your stamp of approval, because we're really the masters of our own fate, and we're really the captains of our own soul, and it's an age-old philosophy. There's nothing new to it, but we'll see what happens as we go through it. In Genesis chapter 11, starting with verse 1, we see that many centuries before Christ, the world lived in one location, spoke one language. There were not several languages. There were not several dialects. As we begin to learn as we look at this, is that the whole earth used the same language and the same words, Genesis 11, chapter, uh, verse 1. So the whole earth used the same language, same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, or literally with the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Because, they, behold, they are one people, and they are all the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's important as we study this, the, the, the theme of grace to understand the opposite of it, which is humanism. And this particular passage gives us the first insight. And I want to sh share with you seven things from this passage that will help us to understand grace more thoroughly. But basically, the Tower of Babel is an interesting subject because this is where it all began. As you can see, as we look at this, the rebellious heart of man began to oppose the plan of God. The Bible tells us that it'll come full circle. That actually in the same location where the Tower of Babel was constructed, if you read the book of Revelation, which gives us a preview and basically an overview of all that will happen yet in the future, God is saying that, you know what? The whole world is coming full circle. That all the same incidents that took place at Babel will once again take place in the end times and that man will set up another throne of government, so to speak, that will be in opposition to God, the same as what they did at the Tower of Babel. And in fact, in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, it says that here Babylon, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth, will be the final great empire of the Antichrist, or the one who comes in opposition to what the Bible teaches. 
And so as we look at all these things, we realize it says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And there, there are seven things that I want to, want to share with you because literally they're talking about they journeyed eastward, pulled up tent stakes, and they began to move toward the east. The first thing that we notice is that it was a rebellion against the command of God. What they did was in rebellion toward the command of God. What God had told the people to do after the great flood is he told them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. The command of God was for a man to go out and fill all of the earth. Well, what happened was, as you can see here, they came together and they said, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to come together. We're going to build a great city because we don't want to. Look at verse 4. We don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. God said, go. They said, no. And there's nothing new to that. I mean, if you stop and think about it, how many times does God tell us one thing and we tell him the opposite? God says, no, and we say, yes. And what Babel really reflects is the confusion that comes along with disobedience to God. I don't know how many times in my life, in my own personal life, when I choose to do something God says not to do, I begin to live in a world of confusion. I don't know how many friends that I talk to, and, 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 you know, and you do too, that are going through difficult times in their life, and they are so totally confused as to what right and wrong is that they don't see right or wrong anymore. How many times do you have to see a friend of yours leave a marriage for something else or someone else or the illusion that there's something else out there? God says, I hate divorce. Why does he hate it? Because it destroys families. And yet there's an illusion that goes along with it. I can do that and get away with it. You can't. If God says no, he says no for a good reason. There's a plan that God has. From the very beginning, it says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They will cleave to one another. The plan of God was for marriage, was for family, was for unity. And yet we have a whole world of people, 55% of marriages end in divorce, 60 to 70% of second end in a divorce. Why is that? Because God says no, and we say go. God says go, we say no. We live in a world of people. God says, you know, hey, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and yet we have a whole world of people who decide, I can do that and get away with it. Why do you think we have AIDS and sexual disease and unplanned pregnancy and all the rest of it? Because we buy into a lie that we can do something that God says not to do, and that's the consequence of it. And yet we live in confusion. This is the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Confusion. Rebellion against God always leads to confusion. You look and you talk to someone, you look at their face and you say, how can you do what you're doing? And they look at you like, I don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand, man. What is it I don't understand? I want to be happy. You want to be happy? Then be obedient to God. Do the right thing. The Word of God's a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. The only thing that will get us back to the course that we need to go on is the Bible. I love it. I was walking out to get a drink. Somebody walked past me and said, hey, you're going the wrong way. I said, hey, thanks for letting me know. You should be going this way. You know, that's our whole life is like that. And what God has done is he brings people into our life when we're going the wrong way to say, hey, ma'am, hey, sir, you're going the wrong way. And it's not based on my opinion, but it's based on what God says. You need to go the right way. Otherwise, there's danger. You're in the danger zone. It's impending. Can't you see it? 
No. Why? Because sin is an entanglement. Sin, sin is always represented in the Bible as darkness and as confusion. And so what happened was, God said, I want you to go and fill the earth. And they said, no. There's a lot of trouble that's represented here. So it was really, it was rebellion against the command of God. And we can all relate to that. The second thing is it was also a revolt against the worship of God. Look at verse 4. It says, come let us build a city for ourselves. And a tower whose top will literally be with the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us build a city for ourselves whose top is in the heavens. If you go back through and you look at the passages, you know, go all the way back to Cain and Abel. God said, hey, you know what? There is a sacrificial system in which I am well pleased. Do it this way. Noah got off the boat. The first thing he did was he built an altar to God to offer sacrifices to God. Abraham, the first thing that he did when he went into a new land was to immediately build an altar to God where he would resume making sacrifices to God according to the ways that God had instructed him to make sacrifices. See, what this revolt against the worship of God was, these people got together and they said, you know what, we're going to sacrifice to God the way that we want to. The same thing that Cain did, the same thing that the people of Babel did, and the same thing that we do. Let me, let me help you understand something. God is saying, there is only one sacrifice in which I am pleased. Humanism says, hey, you know what? You're going to be pleased with our sacrifice the way we want to do it, and that's all there is to it, and you're going to give us your stamp of approval. And if not, we don't really care because we're going to do it our way. There's only one sacrifice that God is pleased. And you know what sacrifice that is? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His death for our sins. That's it. That's God's plan. That's the only way. With this revolt against the worship of God is the same thing that's going on today. You tell people, hey, how are you going to be pleasing to God? And they'll give you a list of 100 things. I'll go to church. I'll give money. I'll stop doing this. I'll start doing that. I'll spend more time with my family. I'll do this, that, the other thing. And God's saying, you know what? That's not how you're going to be pleasing to me. The only way that you'll please God is by obeying what he says will make him pleased. And that is simply trusting in Christ, which is what grace is all about. But humanism says, I'll do it my way. And this is exactly what these people were doing. They're saying, I will do it my way. And they set up an altar at the top of what was a ziggurat. And that's what this tower was that they were building. And there's archaeological finds today. There's 20-some of them in this particular Mesopotamian valley. And what they were were big, tall structures that had a ramp that went around the outside. Kind of like Anaheim Stadium. If you go in it, you go up the ramp like that. Uh, San Diego, Joe Robbie Stadium, things like that, where you can see how you get up to the upper levels. They had a, a ramp that went around the outside. And at the very top of it was an altar that they would worship their own gods. See, what Babel represented was man's way of trying to please God in opposition to what God said would please him. Do you remember when Saul destroyed King Agag and his armies? And God told him, hey, listen, I want you to destroy Agag. I want you to destroy all the spoils of, of, of everything that you conquer. Destroy it utterly. And Saul said, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. So he captured Agag, he marches him to town, he takes all the spoils, there's sheep that are bleeding in the background, and God says, I thought you destroyed everything. And he said, oh no, I didn't do that because I wanted to offer these as a sacrifice to you. And God said, the only sacrifice that's pleasing to me is that you were obedient to me. God demands obedience, not sacrifice. And the same thing is true today. Bottom line, simply this is, hey folks, if God says it, and you want to be pleasing to God, then be obedient to God. Jesus said it best, if you love me, you obey my commandments. That's as simple as it is. 
You know, what's really sad is that we've got a whole world talking about different ways to please God, and the only way that pleases God is simply being obedient to Him. Obey His commandments. It, gets, it doesn't get any easier than that. But these people omitted all of that, and that's exactly what he's looking at. So they've got, they're rebelling against God. He said, go. They said, no. They're revolting against the worship of God. They said, we'll do it our own way. And really, it was a result of pride. If you look at that, why wouldn't they go? Because they wanted to make a name for themselves. So they said, come, let us build a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. See, the problem here is God had already told Noah. Noah had three sons when he got off the boat, Ham, Shep, Ham, Shem, and Jepheth. And he told him that through the line of Shem, through his lineage, God would send a Savior into the world. The name above all names would come through the, the lineage of Shem. What they were saying was, we will not be obedient to that name, but we will make for ourselves our own name. And that's exactly what they meant when they said, we will make a name for ourselves. It was pride. It was rebellion against God. God said, I got a plan. Man said, no, you don't. Even if you do, ours is better. God said, do it my way. They said, no, we won't. And that's what the whole problem was as we look at this. Number, in verse 5, look at the, the, the fourth thing that we see. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. You know, it's amazing to me. Remember when we went through our series of knowing God, we asked the question, what does God really know? And the answer is real simple. He knows everything. Where it says, let us come down, basically God was saying, I know what they're doing, and let us come down is an indication for us that God came down to check it out for himself, to see what they were doing and why they were doing the things that they were doing. But it was a revelation of the knowledge of God. See, what God knows about each of us, we will never know about one another. He knows the secret most, uh, the, the, the hiddenmost secrets of our heart. He knows whether you're playing games with him or not. He knows whether you're sincere or not. He knows whether you want to be obedient to him or not. He knows whether you're playing a game and we're bas basically bartering with him. God, if you do this for me, then we expect you to do that, you know, and then we're going to work this thing out. And he knows whether you're, uh, you're bloody and bowed or bloody and unbowed. We may never know that. But see, God knows everything. And it's a revelation of the fact that God knows it all. It's a reminder to us that, you know what? Hey, what does he know? He knows what they were doing. The next question is, does he care? Does God care? I love this. Because as he goes through, it says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Why did he do that? Look in verse 6. It says, you know what? This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Why did God confuse their language? I mean, like it, you ever talk about, you know, babble or babbling idiot or whatever, somebody who seems to be confused? I mean, that's the root of all of this. It comes back to this particular historical event. But you ask a question, why did God confuse their language? And this is something that humanism will never tell us, but let me just tell you what God says. He says, you know what? If man puts his heart and mind to accomplishing something, he will do it to his own destruction. Why did God have a, uh, an angel guard the garden, in the garden of the, the tree of life? He said, man, if man ate from this, he'd live forever separated from God. So I have to protect them from themselves. Here was man, one language, no dialects, all the information, all the knowledge. They got together and they said, here's what we're going to do. And the heart of man, which is rebellious toward God, is always doing that which is in opposition to God. 
And so God, because he cares about them and he cared about us, said, I am not going to allow them to put their hearts and their minds together in rebellion against me. I'm going to scatter them all over the face of the earth. And what he did was he slowed down evil. And I thank him for it. You know, we talk about how great man is. I mean, man is amazing if you think about it. I mean, we get men on the moon and the space shuttle and, uh, you know, computer and technology and internet and information highways and all these things. And you know what's amazing about all of it is all these great things that man does, it doesn't take long for some man to come and pervert it all and mess it all up. All of a sudden, now we've got crimes we've never had to deal with where we're doing computer crimes and we've got pornography over internet and we've got information highways that have all kind of information that lead to evil as well. And we've got all these things that man thinks that they're going to do that are going to make themselves somehow better and all it does is reveal the fact that we're just kind of messed up. And so as we go through this particular chapter, we begin to realize, you know what? Hey, it's one of the greatest arguments against any kind of world government or world religion. If God is not the center of that government or religion, and that's exactly what God says is going to happen in the end times, that the whole world's going to get together and say, hey, we'll build our own religion, we'll make our own religion, it's in opposition to everything that God says, but we can all agree that that's what our religion will be. And God says, don't do it. And there's only one thing that, that, that it's based on, and that's based on grace. Why do we need grace? Have you ever stopped to think about that? I mean, think about this from the standpoint of, why do we need grace? Let me just share with you one word. It helps me to understand why I need God's grace. And that is because we're all spiritually bankrupt. We're all spiritually bankrupt. I mean, just the term alone should send shivers up our spine. I mean, with all the stuff going on in Orange County and all the layoffs, all the cutbacks, all the devastation that's being created by this bankruptcy, I'm going to tell you what. If you've ever gone through bankruptcy, personally being the debtor or on the other end being the creditor you know how devastating bankruptcy is several years ago I was working for a guy that ended up getting involved in cocaine and he got all messed up and you know one thing led to another and it was just uh, unbelievable you talk about confusion you know trying to talk to him and it's like one moment he was sane and rational the next minute it was like he was like some split personality you know, one minute he'd disappear for two or three weeks at a time, leave his wife, four kids, she was pregnant, end up showing up to, I don't know where he went. He went down to the store to get some bread, and I haven't seen him for two weeks. You know, and that was the kind of stuff that was going on. He'd walk in the office, and we'd start to talk and start going over some business, and blood would start running down his nose. And it was, it was like, it was insane. It was a perfect picture of confusion and, and instability. And it was sad because what ended up happening ultimately was uh, our deal was I had a percentage of the company. We weren't partners because I knew that wouldn't be the right thing to do, but he would give me percentages of stock and things as bonuses and stuff. And he ended up owing us, you know, for us, it was a lot of money. And he just walked in and one day and said, you, you're fired. Why? And he said, because, you know what, if I fire you, then everyone here that works here will be afraid of me and they'll do what I want them to do. Say, so, okay, well, that's your, your choice, obviously, but, you know, we got this buy-sell, we got this employment agreement, you know, you owe me, you're going to owe me a ton of money. He goes, I don't care, sue me. Great. So we go down that path, which is a journey I wouldn't recommend for anybody. But as we're going down this journey, all of a sudden, he files bankruptcy. And you're sitting there going, but, but you owe me all kind of money. And the court goes, but he doesn't have any to pay you. 
And you go, but I don't care. I don't want to hear that. You owe me money. And this nonsensical system that we have will just allow people to walk away from all of their debts and all of their responsibilities because they have no way to pay it. And then you look at this, and, and there's no words in the world that can, can make you empathize or to feel what a person feels when they sit in a bankruptcy court and realize that even though they are legitimately owed it, they're never going to get it. And we'd sit in court and I'd watch this going on and on and on, and all the different people and all the different cases and all, the, you know, the, the, the gardener and the electrician and people that, you know, they really couldn't afford to lose. I, I cut the grass, but he doesn't have any money. But I installed those lights, but he doesn't have any money. But we delivered the furniture, but he doesn't have any money. Too bad. See, and if you've ever been through that, you will begin to relate to what God has to say. Because whether you like this or not, this will not make you feel any better about yourself. But the truth is, it will definitely help you understand God's grace. That the Tower of Babel is just another illustration of really the total depravity of man. Humanism would try to convince us that most of us are good people and that we'll choose to do right. We hear that constantly, and it's a philosophy that, that makes it so... That's what really makes it hard for jurors to convict people. It's like, but why would somebody do something like that? They really couldn't have done that. And so they must be innocent because no one would do something like that. And so we're slowly being led to believe that we're all inherently good. We may have a bad day, you know, every now and then, but for the most part, we're pretty good. You know, and we usually follow it up by saying, but you know what, but I'm a good person. I had a great conversation with a guy the other day, and basically that was his argument. You know, he said, you know, well, I, I know that, you know, that I'll, I'll probably go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. I said, well, how do you define good? Well, you know, I mean, and then he had a long list of things that we usually have. You know, I don't do these things. And so I'm a pretty good person. Remember the book Rabbi Kushner, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? Stop and think about this for a moment. The title alone assumes what? That there are such people. When bad things happen to good people, the title assumes that some of us are good. Here's what his definition was in the book. Good people are ordinary people, nice, friendly neighbors, neither extraordinarily good nor extraordinarily bad. I kind of go, you know, like a C student. You know what I mean? It's just like you're just there. You're not really good and you're not really bad. You're just kind of there. And that was his definition of good. Now, here's the problem. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a moment because this is what the Bible says and, and whether we like this or not. God says this, Romans 3, 10 through 12. It is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Spiritual bankruptcy. There isn't one of us who can even begin to pay the debt that God says we have racked up. Not one. There is no one, not even one. There is no one, no one. All have turned away. They're all worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts, all the good things that we think we're doing are just filthy rags to God. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Humanism says, you know what? There's a lot of good in all of us, and we're all pretty good. God says, you are disgusting. 
There's nothing good in you. You're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing that you have to offer me. I don't want a thing that you think will make me pleased with you. You can't do a thing to get yourself out of the situation with you're in. None of you, not one who's listening to this or one who's sitting here or one who's reading this, not one of you has anything good in you whatsoever. When you understand that, it makes it easy to recognize how someone can do a thing that you think would be impossible for someone to do. We have all capability of doing the most heinous things the world has ever seen. And we see evidence of it all the time. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We're all like sheep and we've gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. We've all turned away from God is basically what God is saying. But here's an illustration. Maybe this will help you out. Let's say the state of California gets sick of the United States of America and decides we're just going to go out and start our own country. Okay? Now, each person that lives in California could be what they would consider a pretty decent person. We can treat each other kindly. We can mow each other's lawns when we're on vacation. We can watch each other's homes. We can help each other if someone's sick. We can do all of those things in this new country of California. You got me? So we're all pretty decent people. But the one problem that we have is, is that we have rebelled against the authority which is the United States of America, and we say we don't want to be part of the United States anymore, so we're just doing our own thing. The sovereignty of the United States, we violate the central authority of the United States by doing our own thing. Now, I realize this, this illustration can break down because there are a lot of governments we'd say, but the government's corrupt, and you don't deserve to be submissive to a government like that and whatever, but here's the reality of all this. What God is saying is, saying, Chuck, here's what you've done. I am an authority... I'm the creator of the universe. I created you. I'm the one who calls the shots. It's my creation, my rules, the, the way I'm going to do things, my laws. And what you've done is you've decided to go out and start your own little country. In that own little country of yours, you think you're a pretty decent person. But the reality of it is, is that you have violated my authority by rebelling from me and pulling away from me. And that's what he's saying, that each of us are like sheep and have gone our own way. We've gone a different direction. And so the central issue, the root issue is this, is that we're just in rebellion against God. God wants us to be submissive, and we say no. But see, God is perfect. He is holy. He is just. He's never done anything wrong that we can justify turning away from him as we would if we were going to secede from the United States and form our own country. So the illustration breaks down from that standpoint, but it really doesn't when you consider that God has never done anything wrong. He says that we are born sinners. Through one man, Adam, sin came into the world, and through him, death. And so each of us are spiritually bankrupt. You know, and yet there are people that say, I read a, a, a Christian article not long ago, and here's what the writer wrote. How could I go on believing in a God who picked on innocent children? Well, let's just set aside her problem about the relationship of God to suffering in our lives, but let's just look at what she said, her reference to innocent children. Now, when was the last time you saw an innocent child? Think about this. Check it out. Watch, and, it always, and you always notice them when like, you leave your kids at home to go out and have a nice quiet dinner, and they bring theirs with them. When was the last time you saw an innocent kid? You sit there and you watch them. Now, you may see one that, you know what, and you almost have to stop and tell them, your child was just an angel. And they're looking at it like, yeah, but you don't see this angel all the time. We got lucky tonight. But the reality of it is, is that this child is not an angel by any means. When was the last time, think about as a parent, when, when did you have to sit down with your child and teach your child to say, no, gimme? 
Did you do it? Okay, here's what your teacher say. No, and gimme. You don't have to, they just, where do they get that? I'll tell you where they get it. God says none of us are innocent. That we're all born messed up. And all it takes is a little while for us to see it in the lives of one another, and it's not hard to believe what God has to say, that there is something wrong with us. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us, Romans 3.23. Here's a great illustration for you. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. It's an archery term. God's glory, or His standard, is a bullseye every time. Perfection. You got it? All of us have sinned, fall short of that. Meaning that, you know what, there isn't one of us who are out and we're shooting archery would hit the bullseye every time. What he's saying is the arrow falls short. Sometimes there's a bullseye and we shoot and it goes here. If you've ever played darts and you've thrown it, you've never hit a bullseye every time, you're off the target. If you've ever gotten a football game, you see a field goal kicker kick a field goal and sometimes they fall short and it goes under the crossbars, it falls short. Sometimes, you know what, when you go to a baseball game and you see somebody that, you know, they're batting, they may get three, three hits out of ten, and we may pay them millions and millions of dollars, but the reality of it is they failed 70% of the time. But we go, but you, you succeeded 30% of the time, so you're doing really good. See, what God's saying is that, you know what, no matter how good you think you do, you're never going to be perfect, and I demand you be perfect. So if you're going to get to heaven, you've got to be perfect. Man, I'll tell you what, the first time I ever heard that, it was like, oh my gosh. I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good, but I know I'm not perfect. I've got to work on some things. And God's saying you'll never work on enough things. See, the problem is that God calls sin rebellion and wickedness and despises the Word of God and defies the Word of God. And all of us make up different terms. Well, I had a bad day. I goofed. I made a little boo-boo. Whatever you want to call it, you know. We, we, we minimize it, and God's saying it is just flat-out wrong. See, now, God doesn't make up the difference between... You know, if you fall short, oh, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and give you that extra 20 yards. Or if you're only getting three hits out of 10, I'll go ahead and give you the other seven hits so that now you're perfect. What he's saying is that you're not going to be perfect. You never will be perfect. And so what grace is, and the wonderful thing about it is, is that grace is a gift. Think about this. Grace is God's free gift. See, you can't understand what a great an amazing thing grace is until you recognize how messed up you really are. I never appreciated this. But when I began to realize, you know what? There is no way that I could do enough good things that I would ever come close to being perfect. There just is no way. And what religion is, is a whole bunch of people trying to do a whole bunch of things to try to get closer to being perfect so that maybe God will then accept them. And God's saying, you know what? What grace is, is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. All the riches and the blessings of God are given to us at Christ's expense. There is nothing that you and I can do that will ever make us perfect before God. What grace is, isn't just making up the deficit. It's the fact that all of us are batting zero. We're not batting 300. We're not batting 200. We're not batting 500. We're not batting 700. We're not even close. All of us are batting a big old zero. And God says, you know what? My grace is, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand that? 
You understand how marvelous that is, how amazing grace is? The first time that I heard that, when I realized that I didn't have to keep trying to do things to please God, but all I had to do was believe what He did for me and He would be pleased with that, and that was enough. Talk about taking some pressure off of you. Talk about freeing you up. Talking about helping you to be freed up to share that with other people. I mean, that's the greatest news this world has ever heard. That God's done everything for us, and all we need to do is believe it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast before God. The reality of all of it is, is that simply what we believe that God did is enough for us. Man, that's good stuff. Not that we make a name for ourselves, because we can't. They tried it at Babel, and God said, no way. But that we believe in the name that God says is greater than any other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And so what must we do to be saved? That you believe on the name of him. That you believe on the name of Jesus. See, we don't appreciate grace until we recognize how lost we really are. And we're just totally, absolutely lost. But by the grace of God, that he gets all the credit, we just want to thank him for it. And it'll help us not only enter a relationship with God, but it'll also change the way we deal with one another. And we'll talk about that in two weeks after Easter when we come back. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this wonderful truth about grace that, um, first of all, we want to recognize that, you know, we are sinners, that we do fall short, that there's none of us that are perfect, no, not one. That as we live in that confusion, we do some of the dumbest things in the world and it's just confusing to the rest of us who watch us when we're in the middle of all that. But God, it's also a lesson that we just need to be praying for those who are lost in such confusion. That you would just somehow or another grab a hold of their hearts so they can see the truth. And that's the truth that'll set them free. God, help us to be messengers of your grace to, to not in any way uh, dilute this message but a simple message that if we put our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us, that you say to as many as do that, believe in him, that we give the, we're given the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's not a matter of working our way to heaven. It can't be done. But it's believing what you did for us. And we just thank you for that. And we just thank you for the way that it changes our relationship, not only with you, but the way that we deal with one another. And we just praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.